All right, let me go ahead and just pray for today's sermon. Had a hectic week, good week, but hectic week, so just prayers are needed every week, but apparently today more than more than normal. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today and the fact that we can come in here and we can celebrate together as your family, as your church. Lord, I pray that you would just speak through me, that we would all walk away from here today with just a better appreciation of the cross, a better appreciation of you coming to earth and the, the holiday that we celebrate Christmas, Lord. We thank you and we love you in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so how many of you put out a nativity, something like this, somewhere in your house around Christmas time? This is not rhetorical. You can raise your hand. Um, the, the, when you kind of study, surprise, surprise, I did some study on when nativities came around and did some history checking and um, apparently, St. Francis of Assisi got permission from the Pope back 800 years ago, 1223, to kind of set up the first nativity scene. Uh, he was in an Italian village called, I'm just going to butcher this, but Grisio is what I'm going to call it. Um, got permission from the Pope, because you had to get permission from the Pope. So he set it up in this local cave that was in this Italian city. And he got an ox, he got a donkey, and then he got a, you know, a Mary and a Joseph, and I don't know who lent the baby, but a, some kind of baby. And um, he invited all the locals to come out, and he preached about the baby in Bethlehem. And the people of the town loved it. And this was 800 years ago. It immediately took off. And within a few hundred years, you could find them all over Europe. Uh, I mean, they literally took off, and people would have little figurines like this, and they would do live nativities, do these kind of nativity scenes. Um, it, it didn't take long. And even today, if you drive, you know, you see this progression of kind of the, the separation of pulling these, uh, these type of, um, you know, structures or characters out of government buildings and town squares. But even still, you... you two miles. You drive two miles down the road in any direction. You're going to see it in people's yards, maybe in businesses, maybe you have them in your own house. Um, And they're just a pretty cool little reminder around Christmas time of the very first Christmas. I think it just is a, it's a really good picture. I grabbed this one from the back of the church and then I realized it was missing some characters that I wanted for my, my illustrations. So I had Courtney bring this one from our house. So this is one that I think the greens bought us and it sits on our little mantle at home. Um, so I'm gonna, what's I'm going to do today? I'm going to walk through some of these little nativity characters, walk through the Christmas story using this as just some illustrations. Um, and so hopefully it'll all make sense by the time we're done. It's making sense up here. Can't make any promises out here. But um, So every nativity has this. If it doesn't have this, it's not a nativity. This is baby Jesus. Okay, so every single one is going to have... Some sort of baby Jesus in the middle wouldn't make any sense without him. You're always probably going to have a Mary and a Joseph, no matter, unless your nativity is defective in some way. It's always going to have those three characters at a minimum. Baby Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Um, now, kind of background on the story. I'm sure you've heard this before, but we're going to walk through it. At the time of the stable, at the time of Christ's birth, they were making this trek. Mary and Joseph were making this trek from where they were from over to Bethlehem. Luke tells us about it in Luke 2. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, 
from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So that's kind of just a little bit of background. Most of you know the story on Mary and Joseph. And then every other nativity I've ever seen has shepherds. This one only has one. But we have our trusty little shepherd here. Um, and it would be very normal for a shepherd. You know, you've heard it. Here's my fear in some of these things. You've heard the story of the shepherds showing up at the birth of Christ. If you've heard the story, you've heard it probably hundreds of times, maybe even thousands of times. And it seems very normal that a shepherd would come to the place where you gave birth. But it's not really that normal. I mean, you don't normally have random people that you don't know show up in your hospital room. I mean, it doesn't sound strange to us, but maybe that's fine with you. But it would have been very strange for shepherds to show up because a shepherd's primary job, as you know, was to keep track of the sheep. Right? Essentially, they made sure no wild animals got to the sheep. They were off on the hillside, on the countrysides. Luke tells us, if you read further down Luke 2, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, here's the thing. You've heard this a hundred times. We've all heard the story. But I don't want you to miss the magnitude. You know, picture yourself in their shoes. Don't miss the magnitude of what we just read. Don't miss the magnitude of what just happened. Okay, there's these shepherds. They're sitting outside Bethlehem. They're on some random hillside, right? They have these sheep. That's their job. That's what they're doing. They're watching over these sheep, probably around a campfire. And then out of nowhere, an angel appears. Okay, let that sink in for a second. Out of nowhere, an angel appears and tells them they need to go find this Savior. Behold, someone has just been born. A Savior has just been born in Bethlehem. And before you think it can get any stranger, verse verse 13 comes around. And it says, and suddenly there was with the angel, the one who had just made the proclamation, a multitude of the heavenly host. Now, multitude probably is thousands, maybe tens of thousands. Okay, so you're these scared little shepherds in a little town on a hillside in the middle of nowhere. And there's possibly thousands, if not tens of thousands of angels now. It says a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Probably what is a terrifying experience. I mean, he literally looks at them and says, fear not. You don't say that unless there's fear. So it probably was a terrifying experience. You know, it's hard to imagine. I I was trying to picture, I always try to like put myself in someone's shoes and imagine what it would have been like. You know, I'm thinking probably the best concert you've ever gone to all right, maybe not some of the concerts you guys go to, but just the best concert. I wasn't talking about you guys in particular. <laughs> Cameron gave me this look like I was singling them out. <laughs> the best concert you've ever been to crossed with a camping trip in a small town in the middle of a pasture on a countryside in the sky. So picture that going down, all right? It would have been mind-blowing. And I think, you know, we're, you, you really have to appreciate the quality of music. I love music. Spotify sends you this thing at the end of the year. I don't know if you guys got this, but it shows you're listening for the year. 
it's it's pretty embarrassing. I, I like I really have to try to settle down and find rest and peace. And so I listen to a lot of classical music, right? Like the old me would have punched the new me in the face probably for listening to classical music. But I just it's very soothing and I, I like it. So I listen to. I think it was like a hundred and. It was like 170 hours of classical music. That's what Spotify told me. It shows your favorite artist and what you listen to. But I think we're spoiled because at the click of a, you know, right on our phones, you can get the best music in the world. The best music in the world. No ifs, ands, or buts. The best artist. You can listen to whoever you think is the best artist. All right. These guys would have lived in a small town in a village in the middle of nowhere. They were lucky if one person in their village could sing. They were probably lucky if two or three people could play an instrument. So the fact that this, they don't have access like we have access, and all of a sudden there is these tens of thousands of angels who have a better voice than any voice you've ever heard in the sky proclaiming the glory of God. I mean, that's, these guys would have never heard anything like it in their entire lives. We would have never heard anything like it in our entire lives, and we have access to all kinds of amazing music. But I promise you, they would have never heard, it would have changed their lives forever. Every single gathering they ever had for the rest of their lives, they would have told the story. Every gathering. Well, here's Grandpa again telling us a story about the time when they, I mean, I'm serious. Every, they're kind of just waiting every Christmas, every, every hangout, because this would have been life-altering for these shepherds. It would have changed their lives forever. And so what do they do? They, they tried to go find where this was. But here's the thing about, here's what I want you to understand the importance of the shepherds appearing. Shepherds. Okay, shepherds were, at this point in time, they were not anything that was looked highly upon. Shepherds were not looked highly upon during this time. The shepherds go all the way back to, I mean, way back to Abraham. Abraham was a shepherd. That's Genesis 12. So, I mean, we see shepherds way back when, I mean, even back to Cain and Abel, you see shepherds. So you have Abraham was a shepherd, Isaac was a shepherd, Jacob was a shepherd. Then you keep going and um, Moses was a shepherd. And then when they got into the promised land and they started doing more crops and more animals and stuff like that, different types of animals, shepherding kind of fell in, you know, to the wayside. You would have kind of the younger son might have been the one like David. Think King David, 1 Samuel, you know, all the sons are there except for David who's out tending the sheep. So it would be the younger son. It was not looked on well. It was, they were, you know, they just didn't look at them very well. You know, you give it to slaves, you give it to hired help. They were looked down upon socially. Shepherds were. They were not trustworthy. Everybody knew it was like a tax collector. Everybody knew just, just leave the shepherds, leave the shepherds alone. Okay, so here's the thing. Shepherds weren't even allowed to worship in the temple. Because the shepherd was constantly around dead animals, and because the shepherd was probably around manure and stuff like that, they would not have been allowed anywhere near the temple. So think about the fact that the God of the universe comes and announces the arrival of the Messiah, the Messiah they've waited for for thousands of years, and the first person that God tells the message of Christmas to, the first group of people that God sends his messengers, his angels to, is a group of people that were never allowed to worship, that were never allowed around the temple, which is pretty mind-blowing if you think about it. And the other thing that's kind of ironic is what they were doing is they were watching over lambs that would eventually be used in temple sacrifice. 
So one of their jobs was to make sure that these lambs could stay without blemish. They would have no blemishes on them. They could be, you know, they would really, really take care of these lambs because life revolved around the sacrificial system in the Jewish culture. So that's, it's kind of mind-blowing to me that the first people, kind of the bottom rung of society, the people that Jesus or God goes to, sends his messengers to, is angels. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I just, I love that. It's a new day. You've been excluded from temple worship before, and now I'm going to bring you directly to my son. And if you think about the life of Jesus, what he did, how he operated, he was the exact same way. You can kind of see the heart of God in those moments, right? If you look at Jesus's ministry, who did he hang out with? People with issues, people who everybody else said get away from, people who weren't allowed in the temple. He hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with tax collectors. He, in our day, he would have hung out with people with, with maybe drug problems or alcohol problems. People who know they're hurting and they understand their need for a savior. And then what he does, kind of like he does to the shepherds, he does, you know, just buying your own business, just, you know, doing your own thing on some field out in the middle of nowhere and boom, God intervenes in your life. Something happens. He puts something there. Like in in the case of the shepherds, he intervenes and says, look, I love you. Go worship me. So the shepherds came. They worshiped. I don't know if they brought their their little sheep with them when they came. I don't know if that's how the sheep got in the stable. But they went and they worshiped, you know, whatever it is. However they did it, they did it. All right. So then another piece of every nativity. So you got Mary, Joseph. You've got baby Jesus. We've got the shepherds. And then you've got these guys. I'm knocking angels over. The wise men. Now, I hate to burst your Christmas bubble, but there probably weren't wise men there. There weren't wise men in the stable. I know it kind of fills out your, your mantle a little better and it makes everything look a little better and sit a little better. But in reality, there probably weren't wise men at the stable. Most likely they came probably two years later probably two years old when they found Jesus and they actually worshiped him and came bearing their gifts. Um, now here's the thing about the, here's the crazy thing about the wise men. You have shepherds on one end of the spectrum over here and the wise men would have been on the complete other end of the spectrum. You could not have gotten any further from shepherds, maybe kings, stuff like that, because they probably weren't kings, but you could not have got any further from the shepherds than the wise men. They were wealthy. Shepherds weren't. They were definitely not Jewish. Okay, they probably were into all kind of pagan astrology. That's what, that's what they did. That's what the Magi did. Magi is an ancient word that refers to pagan astrologers. That's really what Magi means. It's where we get our word magic from. So think of Magi. That's the picture that you conjure up in your head. All right, it's used, the word Magi is used quite a few places in Scripture. One of the places that I like, one of the little passages I think helps out a little is Daniel 4. So if you recall, this is probably seven or 800 years before Jesus is born. Um, the Babylonians came in. They took some of the Jews. They took them into captivity. Daniel was one of the ones that was taken into captivity. And so the, one of the kings, Babylonian kings, kept having a dream. And he wanted this dream interpreted. So in Daniel 4, 6, he says, So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, 
that they might, might, might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make it known. They could not make known to me its interpretation. You could do an entire sermon on the wise men and probably the trail of, you know, were there different types of wise men, were the religions split? Maybe these guys were seeking actually a savior. Maybe they were seeking like the Jewish king, but we just, that would be all speculation. But this is 700 years before Jesus, the Magi were known about. So if you fast forward to Matthew, you can get a little picture of the wise men. Matthew 2.1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Notice they're, they're transfixed on the star because that's what they do. They're, they're most likely astrologers. They're paying attention to the skies and the stars. It says, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then he goes into what the prophet said, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, notice they're not in a stable, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So we we think there were probably three. We only say that because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't really know how many there was. There could have been a ton of them. There could have been a few of them. It doesn't really matter how many there were. But they did come and worship. And just scripture kind of details these two groups that came and worshiped. The shepherds on one end of the spectrum, and then you have the wise men on the other end of the spectrum. And the, the crazy thing is in Matthew 2, and I think Matthew's trying to point this out, but when it says back in verse 2 and 3, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So the Jewish nation had been waiting for this Messiah for thousands of years. I mean, the the prophecies get a little clearer when you hit the 700s, you hit Isaiah. But I mean, this had been prophesied for many, many years. Herod pulls them all together. They hadn't heard from God in 400 years. They had been no prophet for 400 years, from Malachi to the New Testament. All right, and Herod pulls all these, these high priests, the chief priest, pulls them all together and says, hey, the wise men just came from the east, these astrologers. They just saw this star. Where is the Messiah? They came to worship this king of the Jews. Where is he to be born? They say in Bethlehem, and they still miss it. They're pulled in the mix. They st- and I, I, you know, it's crazy. I don't know why they missed it. Most scholars think they probably were expecting a different type of savior. They're expecting someone who would come in and deliver them from Rome. They were expecting somebody kind of like King David, maybe, who came in and conquered 
conquered different armies, the Philistines, stuff like that, deliver them from bondage. But they didn't expect someone to come, their Messiah, their king to come in a manger. I think it's a good lesson for us before we move on to other aspects of the nativity. Far too often, I think we look for a savior to rescue us from our circumstances as opposed to pick us up and carry us through them. You know what I mean? God doesn't promise perfection. He doesn't promise us our lives are going to be perfect. I think so often we come to him and we're like, take this away, take this away. I want, of course we want it away. I, don't, I want it away. The things that are in our, in our lives that are bad, the thorns in our flesh, the things that we don't want any part of anymore, we just want them gone. And we expect our Savior to come in and just get rid of them, like, like just take them all out. And here's the thing. The Savior we have, he has said he's a comforter. He loves us. He cares for us, cares for us and he's going to carry us through the tough times. And I think that's why the Jews missed who Jesus was. They were expecting somebody very different. And here's the other thing. Not only did they pay attention to the star, they probably were looking for it for two years. If they didn't find Jesus till he was two, it's very, very likely that they were looking for Jesus for two years. People who weren't Jewish, people who probably didn't even understand what this Messiah was that they were looking for, or what this king of the Jews even was, and they were going, I mean, do you think they got tired? I mean, if they're humans, they did. You think they questioned why they were going, why they were moving, why they were following, why they were doing this? But they didn't give up. They pressed on. And I just like the picture of that. All right, so got the wise men, we got the shepherds, we got Mary, we got Joseph, and no nativity is complete without the animals. Okay? Um, When I was younger, my mom worked, we grew up in Lakeland, and she worked for Florida Baptist Children's Home which is in Lakeland, and every year they would do this live nativity for the kids in the, that were in the different homes that were on the property. Now, have you ever tried to pull off a live nativity? Anybody ever tried to pull off a live nativity? Um, they're not the easiest. The people part is fairly doable. Like, that's, you, that's accompl- you can accomplish that. But the animals are a different story. You're in a, I mean, and it just kind of gives you a window into maybe what it had been like 2,000 years ago. But you got, you know, these, these people. You've got literally shepherds, if you're doing it right. Probably don't have wise men. But you've got um, animals in this 8-foot by 8-foot little stall for 6 hours while the kids are coming by. And, I mean, it just it never ends well. And when I was a kid, since my father was a veterinarian you know, he knew people with animals. So every year the children's home would call him and say, hey, can you find us the animals for the nativity? So he would always go out and try to round up these, and believe it or not, Lakeland's not like Land O'Lakes. There's not like farms everywhere. I know Jake tries to tell you differently, but there's, there's no farm. So he's, you know, he's driving all the way across all these different places and he's pulling back these animals and I'd come home and there'd be trailers with sheep in the driveway. And I'm just like, what is this for? And then, oh yes, this is the annual nativity scene. And I remember one year we went to it was probably a really big mistake, but we went to Chick-fil-A and they had the sheep in the back of the truck, okay? So the sheep was in a, tra- it was in a, like a carrier, like a big animal carrier. So it wasn't like scrunched in there. It was, it was the right size. But this carrier is in the back of the truck, my dad's truck, and we're ordering. And I don't know if, you know, if you've ever, I've never taken an order through one of those little things, but I'm sure you can hear a lot of what's going on around you. And this sheep was, I mean, it must have thought it was being tortured. Maybe it thought it was going to be cooked or what. But it was going nuts the entire time you're ordering. So if you're on the other end, you can, I mean, I can't even only imagine what he's thinking. So when he goes to make the turn, you know, we go to make the turn in the truck. 
from like here to go pick up our order. There's literally 10, probably more than that, people looking out the drive through window like this, trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And, you know, they come up and they all want to touch the sheep and all this stuff. And it was just, I, I could go on for 50 different stories. Um, and Jake, where's Jake? Jake in here. Okay, so Lakeland is not like Land Lakes and Lutes. <laughs> All right, I'll skip that part. Um, but I, I literally could tell you 10, 10 outrageous stories. But here's the deal. The kids were happy. There were probably animals at the nativity. It gave them a good little picture, a little window of what it, it may have looked like. Um, but here's the thing. Nativities, I wanna, the time we have left, I'm going to kind of walk through this. They come in all shapes, all sizes. This is one actually from my house. Um, I think I put some pictures up there for Ariel to go through. Um, some are a little more odd than others. Um, this, is, this is one that I saw online. Go to the next one. I don't know where any of these are, but he, here's the reason I'm showing you these. Go, I think there's one more. Oh, that's the one that I didn't think I was going to have to bring, but I had to bring it because the one that we had here didn't have all the pieces I wanted. Go to one more. Do I have any more? Um, oh, that's the one. For <laughs> I didn't even know I was going to show that one, but this is whenever we have a little nativity out, my son thinks it's fun to bring Bigfoot and other animals into the mix. So you've got Jesus in the back of Bigfoot with <laughs> Mater looking on and, you know, anyway, I won't. That's maybe not theologically exactly accurate of how the, the nativity would have looked, but here's the deal. The one thing I like about all the nativities I see, thank you for going off that one. Um, the one thing I like about all the nativities I see, no matter where you see it, they're all facing Jesus. And I mean, it's just the way we set them up. You wouldn't set it up, you know, like this and like the people, it just wouldn't make any sense, would it? I mean, you've never seen a nativity with everybody facing the other direction. Um, But here's what I want to leave you with today. I think the real question is not how the nativity is set up in your house or how it's set up in the town square or how it's set up in your front yard, but how is it set up in your heart? I think that's a really important piece. What is, in, in the nativities that you see, everything is centered around Jesus. Every piece of the nativity is focused. It, it, it is all run around Jesus. All right, last week, if you remember, we talked about rest. Do you remember that? Talked about rest, talked about the Sabbath, just that idea. Slowing down, resting in Jesus, taking at least one day Turn off your phone, turn off the computer, turn off Netflix, and just focus on him. And so the question is, did you do it? You don't have to raise your hand. It's for you. Did you do it? Did you take your Sabbath? Did you rest? Did you turn off your phone and focus on him? And I know, I knew some of you would, if I had people raise hands, some of you, some of you tried. You know, you kind of started off, you made it okay for a few hours. But it's just hard. It's hard to rest. It's hard to focus your life around him. And here's the thing. A lot of us, the problem for a lot of us is not that we don't focus on Jesus ever. He's in our lives. He's just maybe on the fringe. He's maybe, he's maybe off to the side. He's just not the center. Our nativity, if you want to call it that way, is set up a different way. But on one day a week... We come to church and put him back in the middle. And, you know, we, we have fun and we worship with our friends and we hang out and we talk about Jesus and, you know, it's, it's great. And then Monday comes along, and I'm just as guilty. This is not me pointing fingers. But Monday comes along, 
and he comes back out here to the outside. And we put something else in his place. Because here's the deal. Our lives are always focused on something. It is impossible for your life not to be focused on something. So if he's not here, then something else is there. And for some of us, maybe it's the, let's call it the shepherds. Let's say that our lives are focused on the shepherds. All right, and so if, if that was your focus, I'd say you're focusing on your work. Because that, that was their work. The shepherds, that was their job. They took care of sheep. So if this is the way the nativity is set up in your life, then your life is centered around your nine to five. It's centered around your career. Centered around your job. And I get it. It's where you spend most of your time. I spend more waking hours at my office than I probably do with my family. It's kind of just the way that you work on eight to five and eight to six, sometimes longer, and you multiply that by five days a week. I get home, the kids are already asleep. I mean, it's just, that's just the way. So I, I get why it happens. But here's the thing. Whatever's in the center of your life, you will also lean on. You look to it for peace. Call it, let's call it a functional savior. You'll look to it to be the one that gives you rest because your life revolves around it. It's obviously important to you. Your life wouldn't revolve around it. You may not know that, but psychologically, mentally, it's important to you because you have, you have your life revolves around it. So whatever your life revolves around, you will look to for comfort and you will look to for peace and joy and rest and satisfaction. And so here's, here's the, the point I want to get across as far as that as far as that goes, your job was never meant to bring you peace. It was never meant to be the ultimate provider of peace in your life. It's a tool for kingdom use. That's what the job is for, right? We make money so we can further the kingdom. We, God puts us in a place in our place of employment. It's so we can minister to others about him. We can love people. We can show the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And we can do that to the people where he has placed us. It's a tool for kingdom use. And if, you're, if your job is the center of your life, things get out of whack. And I've been there. Trust me. It's so easy for the job to be just this. I mean, it's what you do every day. You get up, you go to work, come home, you get up, you go to work, come home. And it's, it's just so easy to fall into the monotony of my life centers around this. So maybe, maybe, you're, maybe the shepherds aren't in the middle. Maybe the shepherds are off in their rightful place. Maybe you've got the wise men in the center. We three kings. You've got the, the wise men right here in the center. And I, I, you know, I look at the wise men. I'm like, what, who were the wise men? What, what were they 2,000 years ago? If your life revolves around the wise men then maybe it revolves around wisdom, but of the wrong kind. Maybe not godly wisdom. Maybe it's pursuit of knowledge, pursuit of education. You know, that's most important to me. I have to do this. I have to get this. I have to maybe have money, maybe have fame. These guys would have been well-known. They would have had fame. They would have had riches. They would have been, had success. They would have had popularity. That maybe the pursuit of of your life, if you strip everything else back, you're like, what am I living for? What's at the center of my life? What do I wake up every morning trying to do? What do I focus my life to? Maybe it's focused to those things. And I mean, in the eyes of the world, those guys had it all together. Upper echelon of society. The wise men would have been the upper echelon. But here's the important thing to remember when it comes to a life that's focused on these things. The wisdom of the world 
and the wisdom of God are very different. Opposite ends of the spectrum. What God looks at as wise and what man looks at as wise are very different. Corinthians, if you want to read just a great book of the Bible that talks about the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of man, read 1 Corinthians, at least the first six or seven chapters. I could have put 10 verses up here, but I just put a couple verses up here. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. he's writing to the church at Corinth and Paul says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And then 1 Corinthians three eighteen, it says, let no one deceive himself. If, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So here's what I would say. Pursue education, pursue knowledge, pursue wisdom, but keep pursuing those things through the lenses of the gospel, through the lenses of who Jesus is, through the lens of keep the Lord at the center of all those pursuits. If he makes you rich, awesome. You got rich for a reason. It was so you could love the people around you and take care of the people around you and show them who God is. If you've got knowledge and you're a doctor and God's given you, you know, smarts in a particular area, use it for his kingdom. Use it for ministry to others for him. Nothing wrong with any of those things. It's just how you use them and if they're centered around him. So let's pull the wise men out. And let's put the animals in. Some of you cat people are freaking out right now. Do we have any cat people? Don't, don't raise your hands. Um, um, maybe, the, maybe the animals are at the center. And let's, you know, I mean, this might be a stretch, but just work with me here. It's, it's, an illust- it's a Christmas. You've heard every Christmas sermon under the sun. So just this is, we're trying to come at this with just something that's different and very particular and impactful for you and where you are. So let's say the animals are in the center. Um, and let's say these represent hobbies, hunting, animals. Might be a little sacrilegious, but we do live in lutes, land of lakes, that kind of thing. So maybe they represent your hobbies. Fishing, literally. Hunting. I mean, do we know anybody that lives revolves around hunting and fishing? Don't raise your hand, wives, don't look. <laughs> All right? It's, it, it happens. Your life can, let's say it's things you like to do in your free time. Golf, vacations, hobbies. Those are things your life can revolve around. Would you agree with that? how you spend your free time. Is there anything wrong with those things? No. But when they're at the center of your life and your life revolves around them, things can get out of whack. There's nothing wrong with any of these things unless they're at the center of your life. Does that make sense? There's nothing inherently wrong with any of them. But when you, when they're at the center of your life and you revol- your life revolves around them and your life goes sideways and something happens, you're going to lean on those. I got to get to the office more and work more. I'm just so stressed out. Work's going to help me. I got to go here. I got to just play more golf. I got to go hunt. I got to get away from everything and go do this. And God says, I'm your comforter. Let's do those things together. I am the Holy Spirit. I'm your comforter. Come to me in times of need. All right, let's take the animals out and let's put Mary and Joseph in the middle. So let's say Mary and Joseph are at the center of your nativity in your heart. I'd say if that's true, then your focus is family, friends, relationships, people. And you're probably like, what's wrong with that? You know, James Dobson spent 
50 years focusing on the family. That was a really bad joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but here's, here's the thing. Making family a priority is a great thing. Would we all agree? Family being a priority is a great thing. That's an important thing. But family will never fill the hole in your heart that Jesus was meant to fill. Nor should they. All of these things can be functional saviors. That's what Tim Keller calls them. Functional saviors. There's something that you have a hole in your heart of some kind that only Jesus can fill. And you say, I don't know about pursuing him. I'm going to put something else in its place. And I'm going to pursue that because that's what's going to save me. And they're just called functional saviors. He is our comforter. He is our provider. He is our source of strength. He belongs. Let's put him back in his rightful spot. Jesus and Jesus alone belongs in the center of our lives. He's the subject of our passions. He's the subject of our pursuits. All right, my kids have these little riddles that they like me to do when we're in the car where they tell me to think of something random. You know, they want me to think of something and give them clues as to what it is. So they'll just give me like, hey, you know, well, tell, us, tell us a riddle. Tell us something. I don't know if they use the word riddle, but they'll just, you know, tell us a, a story, but, you know, help us figure out what it is. So I'll, I'll say something. What I'm going to read you, I did not think of. This is way beyond my ability to think. But um, I want you to listen to this paragraph. And I want you to see if you can picture what I'm talking about. All right, some of you will probably get it. Do not shout it out if you get it because you'll ruin it for everybody else. Um, but some of you who pursue knowledge and educate, just kidding. Um, all right, here's, here's what it is. A newspaper is better than a magazine. And on a seashore is a better place than a street. At first, it's better to run than walk. Also, you may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful... Complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. One needs a lot of room. Rain soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. I'm not smart enough to think of that, but anybody know what I'm talking about? Don't yell it out. I mean, you're probably thinking of something. All right, I'm going to read it again. And I'm going to tell you what the subject is. And I want you to hear the exact same words that you just heard. And now you know what the subject is. Because here's the deal. A sentence without a subject is frustrating. And a paragraph without a subject, a story without a subject is frustrating. And a life without a subject is meaningless. It really is. So listen to this same thing when knowing what the subject is, knowing what's at the center of the story, and picture a kite. A newspaper is better than a magazine. On a seashore is a better place than a street. At first, it is better to run than walk. Also, you may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. One needs a lot of room. Rain soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. Make sense that time? You knew what the subject was. You knew what the focus was. And the sad reality is, so many times we spend our lives focusing on all the wrong things. We have all the wrong things in the center of our life, and we're really just trying to find comfort, peace, joy, satisfaction. We're trying to put our affections somewhere, centering our lives on all these other things when it should be centered on one thing. 
And that one thing is the Savior. The one person who can bring clarity to all the other things. So as we close today, let me ask you a question. What's your life centered around? Think of your life. What's it centered around? For some of you, maybe you spent your entire lives focusing on everything but Jesus. I mean, I was there. Spent your entire lives focused on everything but Jesus. And you've heard about him. You've seen all these nativities all over town, but you've never truly put him in the center of your life. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever truly been healed by the power of Jesus? It's a really important question. Have you ever been rescued from the penalty of your sins? 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. And for those of you who are followers of Christ, you'd consider yourselves a Christian. Are you pursuing him like the wise men did? Are you in awe of who he is and what he's done like the shepherds? That awe and wonder that you know filled the hearts and minds of the shepherds, does it still lie in your heart? And then is Jesus at the center? And here's the thing. For the average person who Jesus is over here, he's still in the picture. Would you agree? He's still in your life. You go to church on Sundays, you maybe read your Bible every now and then. The key is, he's not in his rightful place. His rightful place is right there in the center. And here's the thing I want you to know. I don't ask these questions from a judgmental standpoint. I ask as someone who spent many years of his life focused on everything but Jesus. Pretty much focused on all of those other things. Many years of my life. And I just, he was there. He was in my life, but he wasn't the center. And when I would go sideways, when life would go sideways, life would punch you in the face. I'd open my eyes and I'd try to refocus and I'd, I'd, oh, oh, I really just need to refocus on him. And you'd open your eyes, you put him back in the center, you open your eyes, and he's standing there with open arms. Every time. It's like the prodigal son returning to the father. He's always there with open arms. It's, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. Most of you probably know, um, but for those of you who don't, Courtney and I adopted a little girl this week. Um... I didn't have anything to do with it, so you're clapping for God. But um, my apologies if you weren't in the loop, but it happened so fast that nobody was really in the loop. I, don't, I was barely in the loop. All right? Um, I'll, I'll give you, I won't give you a lot of background. I'll do that future sermons. But just, for, just so you have a little um, idea of what happened. We started the adoption process. We didn't even really start it, but we talked about starting it November 15th. So that was maybe less than six weeks ago, five weeks ago. Um, you know, Courtney texts me and she goes, hey, I really want to start praying about maybe adopting again. And long story short, we got some phone calls from agencies the next day and it was like, okay, maybe this is God. Not that it's not always God, but maybe this is God doing this. And then three days later, we agreed to show our profile to a birth mom who got a bunch of profiles. And, you know, as God would have it, she chose our profile and she was due in three weeks. And so it's, you know, Audrey Elise was born Tuesday. Um, she's currently in the NICU, probably will be for quite a while, just foreseeable future. She's having some trouble eating. Um, and she's obviously at the age where she sleeps all the time. But here's the deal. Every so often, she'll open her eyes. This is one of the first times she opened her eyes. And every so often, she'll open her eyes, and she'll try to focus in 
on her surroundings. You know, just like a little baby would. So she's, you know, she's like this, and she wants to sleep all the time. And then every now and then you're like, hey, wake up, it's time to eat. And she'll go. You know, and she'll look around and give you one eye, and she'll just kind of open her eyes and look around. And we always want to be there when she opens her eyes. Because even though she's adopted, we're her parents. And it's hard for me to put into words. You know, I see a lot of baby pictures, and your babies are cute, trust me. I'm not saying your babies aren't cute. I see a lot of baby pictures, and you know how it is. It's like, oh, it's such a cute baby. And then some odd reason, I didn't even know this kid existed. This kid didn't exist last week when I was preaching. Right? I mean, they hadn't been born yet. And now all of a sudden, she's born, and the love that is already in my heart for her is so, you just can't put it into words. Like, I can't, I can't tell you how much I love her. And when she gets her eyes and she opens her eyes and, you know, she puts them on you, we just, we want her to know that we're there for her, that we love her, that we care for her. It doesn't matter that she's adopted. It's that, you know, we love her and God looks at us the same way. All of us are adopted into his family. And he looks at you and you try to refocus your eyes because he's not at the center of your life. And you open your eyes and you try to refocus and all of a sudden you look at him and you're, he's like, I'm your dad. I love you and I care about you and I just want to be the center of your world. I want to be at the center of your life. And, you know, as, as hard as it is for me to put into words because she was just born, I have no idea what her future is going to hold. None of us do. I have no idea. I have no idea. Go to, I have a couple more picks in here. I have no idea what the future holds for her. But I know that God loves her even more than I do. And I know he knows the number of hairs that are on her head. He knows when she's coming home from the NICU, even though I have no idea. He knows when she's going to start walking and talking, when she's going to learn to ride a bike, you know, where she'll go to school, what she'll do for fun, what she's going to do for a living. Will she have kids? Will she get married? I don't know any of those questions. I know life's going to throw her curveball after curveball after curveball because we live in a fallen world and that's just what sin does. Sin punches you in the face and it happens. And I just, my, my prayer for her, my prayer for you is that when that happens, you open your eyes and you focus on Jesus. You know, we have this little prayer. We pray with our kids every night. They don't even know what it means, I'm sure. Jaden probably does now that he's five. But we've prayed it since they could first talk and just have them repeat after us. And it's just, they go through their little nightly prayers and they say, they say, I pray. And they have to like, it's almost like repeating marriage vows because they can only say about three words before they forget. So you've got to keep saying it in little chunks. But it's, this is what they say every night. I pray that when I grow up, I will love you more than anything else in the whole world. And obviously that's not to us. They're praying to the Lord. And that's what they say. Lord, I pray that when I grow up, I will love you more than anything else. And that's, that's obviously my prayer for my kids, but it's my prayer for you. It's my prayer that every ounce of your life and every piece of your life would be focused on him and that you truly do love him more than anything else in the whole world. All right, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for hectic weeks. We thank you for unexpected blessings that just had no idea what even happened, Lord. Thank you for just who you are, the, the patience, the love with us, the fact that we can focus on so many other things in our lives except you. And when we refocus on you, you're there with open arms. I pray if there's anybody in here this morning, Lord, who hasn't put you at the center of their lives, maybe ever, 
or they're just out of whack right now, that they would recenter that figurative nativity scene around you. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.